Today we have a different episode of the Heaton podcast for you. We are in Remembrance Week, and yesterday we had a whole school assembly in which we commemorated those old boys of the school who served and died for their country in the Second World War. It was a very powerful assembly, especially because the names of the old Warwickians who died in the Second World War were read out. There were 65 names. Given that the school was so much smaller then, just 415 boys in 1940, a record, the numbers are devastating. I'm Toby Dunlop, I play cricket and I'll be speaking about Wilfred Cunningham. Wilfred Cunningham bowled medium pace for the first team. He was able to swing the ball back into the batsman and move it away off the seam. He collected 10 wickets in the 1933 cricket season. The head of cricket called him the season's greatest discovery. He was shot down in his Wellington bomber whilst on a bombing raid to Germany in 1940. He was 22 years old. I'm Alvin Young, I'm the head of the boarding house and today I'm going to talk to you about Richard Marrick. Richard Marrick was head of the boarding house in 1934. He was also house captain of Brook and part of the Physics Society. He played rugby for the school as a forward where he often did useful work attaching himself to the back line. He joined the RAF and was a Spitfire pilot. He died in operations against the Japanese in November 1944, aged 28. My name's Tom Heath and I currently play rugby for the first 15. I'm going to talk to you about George Measures. George Measures was a forward for the first 15 in 1934. He was dominant in the lineup, although he was a bit slow around the pitch. Whilst at school he was also a member of the debating society. He joined the Royal Navy and was lost at sea when his ship was bombed in the Mediterranean in 1943. He was 25 years old. Hi, I'm Harrison. I play cricket for the first team. I'm going to talk to you about John Davies. John Davies was a final rounder and the 1939 cricket team's best batsman. He drove the ball powerfully and was a good hooker of the ball. He scored the top score of the 1939 season with 92 runs. In 1942, he was awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal for his piloting skills. He was lost later that same year when his Sterling bomber was shot down over France. He was 22 years old. Hello and welcome to the Heaton podcast. As you heard in the intro there and from some of our pupils, we have been remembering those old boys of the school who fought for and gave their lives for their country in the Second World War. I'm just going to expand on a couple of those stories we heard from. So Tom told us about George Measures. And in my research uh, this week, I found out a bit more about him. So as well as being a rugby player, he was in the debating society. He was a very able violinist and he gained a degree from Cambridge after he left the school. He'd go on to join the Royal Navy, serving on the aircraft carrier HMS Indomitable. He would then be lost at sea during Operation Pedestal to relieve Malta, when the aircraft carrier was bombed and hit twice on August 12, 1942. One of the other boys we heard about was John Davies. He's a fine cricketer. He played cricket for three consecutive years for the first team. And I'm going to read you what was put in the portcullis when news reached the school of his death. In the death of John Davies, the school has suffered the loss of one of the most charming and distinguished members. It was only a short time ago that we heard with pride 
but without surprise that he had been awarded the DFM for the skill and courage with which he extricated his bomber from a perilous situation during a raid over Germany. The outbreak of war caused him to leave school in the midst of a career of exceptional promise. Everything he did revealed easy and powerful gifts. His scholarship foreshadowed university honours and he had acted as an important part of the school play. But it was as a sportsman that we most vividly remember him, especially on the cricket field. Both as a bowler and a batsman, he showed the touch of mastery which distinguished the first-class player from the rest. He was good-humoured, modest and always concerned for the success of others. He was beloved and respected by all who knew him and we join his family in mourning his untimely death. So with me is my co-host John. John, you were in the uh, assembly yesterday. I got quite emotional listening to the uh, stories and names being read out. It was it was exceptionally moving. Um, it was it was profoundly important. I think that the school you know, has events like this, those events of commemoration. And I was just struck by um, how how beautifully the boys read out those stories and how powerful it was that those boys you know connected with their predecessors. That when they spoke, uh, we, we we tried to have them representing boys who were like them. 80 years before. It was a very powerful occasion, I thought, Ollie. One of the things I think we heard was we started off with our headmaster, James Barker, reading out the newsletter from the Portcullis, the letter sent to the old boys in December 1940. And um, I suppose something struck me was how much like it is what we do today. He was talking about what the weather was like, the approaching Christmas, the rugby team, the boarding house. But um, the background of war, he references raids in the Midlands um, and the like. And you know a bit about Arthur Bishop, don't you, the headmaster then? Yeah, I, he's a very interesting character, Arthur Bishop. And I think well, what strikes me about him is that he's a, he's a great academic I and mean, he's written um, a widely respected secondary school textbook in chemistry. In fact, when I started at the school, uh, the current uh, music department uh, was history and geography for my first year at the school. It was history and geography. Before that, of course, it had been this state-of-the-art science department. And Warwick had had a number of uh, very great scientists um, as headmaster. So he's a, he's a very great academic. Um, he's always wanted, he says, to be headmaster of Warwick School. And he's headmaster for a very long time. He's headmaster from 1936 until 1962. And it's almost inconceivable, isn't it, to think of the the changes uh, that he lived through, the events that he lived through. This is a headmaster who takes over at about the time of the, the Rhineland crisis and the rise of the Nazis and retires in the year of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's so different. And yet exactly as you say, Ollie, his headmaster reports, almost 75% of it could have been read by James Barker today, couldn't it? Mm. Some things don't change, and yet other things are inconceivably different. I remember... Uh, reading somewhere that um, in the summer of 1940 uh, the school hosts a, uh, a tea party for 300 survivors of Dunkirk. I mean, if, oh, right. on, yeah, I hadn't come if that. only one could, you know, talk to somebody who was there, perhaps even photographs were taken. Uh, I would just love to have been at an event like that. What was it like with the boys serving tea? Perhaps even today there are people, very old people, who, who were there. Wouldn't it be amazing to uh, to know uh, more about what event like that was like and yet so much was different and yet so much was the same mm. 
Yeah, the photos. So, in the assembly, we got the photos of some of the boys who uh, died in the war, and the photos we got tend to be sports teams, so cricket and football teams, rugby football teams. And uh, you can, if you want to go and see those, they are on the school website, a couple of the photos, under the uh, headmaster's blog section, it should be. And it was just coincidence, wasn't it? The 34 to 35, 1934 to 35, rugby first 15, it was three boys standing next to each other, whom all uh, perished in the war. And that was very powerful, wasn't it, really? Because we saw that image in the assembly and to actually have you know, th- those heads ringed, you thought, oh my goodness, this really brought it home to you, I think. Yeah. And the, the school's the point you made, the school was smaller, so casualties were, sorry, deaths were 65-ish. Yeah. The definitive list is actually quite hard to get, yeah. quite. But uh, they, the school was smaller, so it's a higher proportion of casualties. And one thing I noticed, just coincidentally really is these deaths were happening in the RAF pilots so uh, these boys who are in the rugby and cricket teams tend it seems to go to the RAF um, that's very interesting I, I hadn't picked uh, up on that they see them as the the more talented sportsmen they see it as the exciting way to go perhaps to join the RAF and fly planes one um, thing too perhaps um, perhaps on a happier note I noticed too when the headmaster reads out the um, his report um, there's also some good news, though. There are people who have been at Dunkirk who they've now discovered uh, are prisoners of war. Mm. And I was really struck that one of those is, of course, the future education secretary, uh, Fred Mully. There's a reference there that yeah, we are delighted to announce that F.C. Mully uh, has been reported in a prisoner of war camp. So as part of our being history teachers, we've taken trips to the battlefields. Um, and I think we've always tried to find old Rickians who have served and died and commemorated on those i've tended to go to first world war battlefields myself but you've been to the second world war battlefields quite a few times haven't you john yeah i mean i went on a school trip myself um i think in 1979 and uh, i remember that school trip very well because um there were there, there were boys in our group who were you know picking up shell cartridges on aramonch beach and they had to be stopped i mean you know even even in 1979, you, know, you could still find um, the debris of the Second World War on the beaches of Aramanche. And uh, over the years, as a, as a Warwick school teacher, I've taken um, a number of trips to uh, uh, Normandy uh, with teachers who many of us will remember, um, Robert Hudson, uh, Pete Johnson, uh, Ben Lewis, Alan Vaughan, uh, the late Humphrey Collis. And uh, they've always been very, very memorable um, occasions, uh, very very enjoyable because there's uh, an excitement to being um, on a few days trip in France, uh, but also deeply poignant too, actually. Mm, I, I'd agree with that. The, the initial excitement, but then the, the trips to the trips to the cemeteries and you see the graves uh, and in, in Normandy, there's quite a few, aren't there? There's a lot of museums and there's the there's the kind of exciting guns you get to see but then you also have mm. the poignant memorials um, one good one I saw in northern France was uh, there was a German cemetery and then an uh, allied cemetery and they're about 100 150 mm. metres apart mm. and they built uh, what they call a, an allée of peace mm. uh, the French between it and they had the flags of the nations so the American flag the German flag the French flag uh, flying on this walkway they'd made between the two Cemeteries, and we should mention the German cemeteries, I think, 
because they're quite different. If we have an image of a, of a British cemetery, it, we think of Lutyens and his designs, mm. don't we? Which mm. we've got that oct- octagonal base with the cross on, and the colour generally is that marbly off-white colour, mm. which is quite uh, hopeful, optimistic in a way. It, it, it's a pleasing one, but the German cemeteries, which I've been to, have always mm. been very dark. And these dark colours are dark red or yeah. black. And you've been to the D-Day uh, yeah. cemetery. And I remember Mr Hudson recounting me a story of you um, admonishing the boys, telling the boys to take it seriously, in essence, when they were there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that must have been about 1998 or 1999. And, um, and I just begin by saying I, I agree with what you've said. I mean, when you go to the First World War battlefields, the Allied battlefields, the Second World War battlefields... There's a real sense of resurrection there. Um, when you go to the uh, German uh, cemeteries, um, it's a very different experience. Um, and the one I took the boys to in Normandy uh, was Le Cam. And I think there was that still that sense that, you know, the good guys had won and we, t- we take it very seriously going to British cemeteries. But actually, well, you know, the Germans, that they were the Nazis. Why should we take this so seriously? And... Um, yeah, there, 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 there was some horsing around it, if I'm honest, Ollie. And I, I, I was very unhappy, and I did admonish the boys afterwards. And I think, I hope, uh, they took that seriously. Because when you go to these battle uh, battle sites, when you go to these cemeteries, it really is striking how young these people are, particularly in Normandy, uh, that the people who are being killed in Normandy, the German troops being killed, are 18, 19, 20 years old. It's, la- it's, it's Hitler's last throw of the dice, and how many of these people were dedicated Nazis? I think a lot of these people were just called up in a last desperate effort uh, to um, secure the future of the Third Reich. So I don't think we can make any value judgments on so many of these people uh, who died. And I think it's very important when you take a battlefield trip, you have to go to cemeteries, both the Allied cemeteries uh, and also the German cemeteries. And they're very sombre experiences, the German cemeteries, not least because the numbers interred there uh, are so massive. Yeah, so they get, they get given smaller plots of land, yeah. um, and so you, you get mass graves in essence. You'll get four names on a, on a plaque in the ground as opposed to just one name yeah. for the British and Allied cemeteries. And I think it's important too to recognise when you go to these places that the boys need... Uh, to learn something from it. They need to come away not only with having learned history, uh, but also thinking more deeply about conflict and strife and what it can lead to. Mm. Which sometimes we forget, don't we, in our Yes, yeah, I mean, we, we, we can get, get caught up in the, yeah. the, the, the tactics mm. and the strategy. But I thought what was very powerful about the Assembly a few days ago is these are, these are countless human lives that are being cut short because of the decisions being made by politicians. Not that, of course, we're saying that the Second World War was a war that shouldn't have been fought, but we do always need to think about the human cost of what happened. And I think, um, I think the Assembly the other day did that really powerfully, actually, Ollie. Yeah, well, took a lot of research to find the stories, but it shows you how valuable the uh, portcullis is as a magazine. I always think, oh, another portcullis mm. article to submit, mm. but the names and the pictures are just can be so important. So many years later. Totally. And I I just wonder if anybody is out there uh, listening to us who is perhaps on one of those school trips that Ollie or I have taken over the years. Please do get in touch with us. What were your recollections? What were your memories uh, of those trips? Because I do know that a lot of boys 
have actually found them profoundly moving, really. And I think often it's changed the way that boys look at the world. So if you have any recollections, do please be in touch with us. The Remembrance Assembly we had on Remembrance Day this week at school is not something we've done for terribly long. It's in fact only the third time we've gathered as a school in my time here. So the whole school assembly which we had on Remembrance Day is only the third of those large formal events that we've done in my 12 years at the school. And I was thinking back to my time at school when I was at school in the 2000s and there weren't really big ceremonies of remembrance. Um, and ours has started really with that 100th anniversary of the end of the First World War. I would say we've always had very moving chapel services, but we've never had the whole school coming together. Um, what about you, John? You're yeah, I mean, I, older than me when yeah, you were at school? Yes, I mean, often we, we're very critical of ourselves, aren't we? But I think actually remembrance is something that we've started to do significantly better uh, than when I was at school. I mean, I was at school in secondary school, uh, 1978 to 1985. Um, and I remember almost nothing being done about Remembrance Day on November the 11th. I don't remember. I remember wearing poppies, but I don't remember whole school events commemorating it. And I just wonder whether, when I'm at school, the the, the first and second world war is is almost taken for granted. We we don't really think much about it. I mean, that there are members of staff at Bristol Grammar who taught me, who, who I knew had been in the, in the Second World War. My father had fought in the Second World War. But it, it wasn't one of those things that you talked about. You, you, you took it for granted. Uh, you didn't ask questions about it. And I think at one level, that's a great shame. But at another level, it's almost, I think, a tribute to that wartime generation that they didn't want to make a big thing about it. Very much unlike perhaps what we're like today. This was something that had happened, and uh, we want to move on. I, I remember when I'm growing up, lots of my father's friends had been in the Second World War, but I don't remember any of them ever bringing it up in conversation. Or if they did, they would bring it up quite um, ironically. Uh, if they did mention the Second World War, it would be to sort of show how they'd, um, they'd, make a mis- they'd made a rather sort of silly mistake. I remember um, one of my oldest uh, family friends was Doug Pratton, who died some years ago, who's a wonderful man. He was a history teacher. And I remember he used to refer to himself in 1940 as the, um, as the, as the private pike of the lower Cotswolds, <laughs> <laughs> guarding us from invasion. And of course, you know, D- Doug goes on to, uh, to, fly, um, uh, to fly Lancaster bombers over Germany. He's the navigator. Although, of course, he never learnt to drive. He said he wasn't very good at navigating. And I remember him telling me once that um, towards the end of the war, they, they, were, they were shot. And um, the plane was about to uh, to crash land, so he was told he had to do the emergency coordinates to uh, to get them down. And he did that. He felt you know really rather well. And at the last moment, the captain said, uh, "Where are you landing us, Doug? Where are you landing us, Pratton?" And he said, "Well, um, we're, we're going to come down in Jersey, sir." And he said, "You bloody fool! It's still occupied." And they went up again. But that was the sort of stories you'd hear about the Second World War. That they weren't great stories of daring do. Uh, very often they were rather um, amusing, rather ironic. And I, I rather valued that about that generation, Ollie. Mm, I mean, I find it really interesting you talk about that kind of home guard element. Uh, because one of the early deaths of Olderickians was actually a boy who must have just left the school, uh, John Randall. Because he was um, an air raid warning motorcyclist and he's only 18. 
and he's so he's going around during a bombing raid, and he um, has a road traffic accident on the Banbury Road. So you know, very close to where we're sitting talking. Um, so it's civilians as well in these jobs within England who die, as well as being in a foreign field. I mean, the, the list of foreign fields for older Ickians is quite uh, extensive. Uh, France, Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, as you'd expect. Uh, Italy, which I'm going to talk about at the end. But much further field, Egypt, Iceland, Hong Kong, Damascus. These, these boys were going all around the world to serve their country, and some of them did indeed die as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I guess I was, I was thinking about this the other day, Ollie. I, I mean... I'm probably the the only member of staff to actually to be old enough to have a to have had a parent who fought in the Second World War actually. And when I was growing up, as I say, that seemed to be something that was part of the course amongst my friends. Uh, but now, of course, um, that generation has has really died out. Although, having said that, only a few years ago, um, I met a, a very old man who was going on a hundred. He's still alive, a Bob Sir, a Bobler Sir rather, who 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 was in Jersey. In, in the Second World War, and was with the um, was with the resistance, and I remember with my children just sitting down and listening to him talking about the German occupation of Jersey, and that was a you know profoundly moving experience. But again, um, there was that slight sense of um, ironic detachment when you told these stories. I remember I said to him, "Can you remember the day the Germans arrived in St Helia?" And Bob looked at me with a steely eye and said, of course I do, young man. Do you take me for an imbecile? <laughs> I, I, just, I, th- I just think that that generation uh, has gr- great qualities. And then when he told us about the way that he had uh, rescued uh, Soviet prisoners of war and kept them in hiding, um, he didn't attach any heroism to what he did. It was just the sort of thing uh, that you would do. And then we got to talking about Brexit. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the, the Americans have this term, the greatest generation, uh, to describe those who fought in the Second World War. I often think it's better to call them the, the generation who the greatest number of things happened to, Second World War, Cold War. But, mm. um, yeah, that, that ge- greatest generation, of, who a small number are still alive, but they are, have been dying off, haven't they, mm. from, since 2000. Mm. It is uh, certainly linked with the rise in remembrance, I think, to a certain extent that because of it we sense we are losing that oral history that immediacy that link to the past and that is possibly what's making remembrance more of a focus and it feels almost more important now people can't tell their stories um, I couldn't agree more Ollie I'm sure there'll be a, a number of our listeners who remember Paul and Rudy Oppenheimer talking at the school and uh, you know Paul Oppenheimer and Rudy uh, were both as many of our listeners will, will know survivors of Bergen-Belsen concentration camp and Paul uh, first spoke at the school in 1998. And I remember uh, Paul... I mean, it's actually the, the actual 60th anniversary of Kristallnacht in Germany when he spoke. And I remember Paul saying that um, for all of his adult life, nobody had been interested in his experiences during the war. He'd never mentioned it. But actually, what, what, had, um, what had changed people's minds had been the film Schindler's List. People were suddenly interested in what had happened in the Holocaust because of Schindler's List. And I wonder whether films like Saving Private Ryan, films like that, and the knowledge that this was a generation um, that was beginning to die out, concentrated our minds. Mm. And I think in, in, a, in a very worthy fashion, actually, because that generation were not themselves going to talk about uh, their experiences. 
I remember that my father uh, died in 2007. And as I say, he never talked about the war. And yet when he died, um, I discovered um, that he'd written um, about his experiences, but he'd never shown it to us. Uh, and he was a um, in the paratroop regiment. Uh, he'd been in Burma. And uh, when he died, I discovered in his bureau uh, that he'd actually written about uh, jumping out of an aircraft for the first time. And I'll just read you a little bit of it, because I think it kind of sums up um, the bravery of that generation, uh, but the fact that they did kind of keep these thoughts to themselves. I moved to the door. We were nearing the dropping zone again, and the feeling of reluctance which the song had almost stifled returned with increased force. I felt that I could never bring myself to jump. Then I caught the eye of my instructor by my side. The twinkle in his eye told me that he knew exactly how I felt. He leaned forward towards me. I say, he said, which pocket's your money in? Top left hand, I answered. And when I was working out just what he meant, uh, my wits were then not at their sharpest, he rapped, action stations, go. And I went. What happened then I can barely remember. My first feeling was one of immense relief. I'd got out. In that split second, I didn't... Uh, care tuppence for anything else. I'd got out and that was all that mattered. I dimly recall my pleasant sensation of being buffeted along in the slipstream, a slight tug and I was airborne. That was the most superb moment of my life. Less than a minute before I'd been standing at the door, the din of the engines and the unmelodious singing of my comrades ringing in my ears. As if by the waving of a magic wand, I was alone in space, the world suddenly wrapped in beautifully exhilarating silence. I dangled there, drunk with delight, glorying in the thrill of effortless flight. Idly, I watched the little figures on the ground grow. My dreams were rudely shattered. Someone was shouting at me through a megaphone. Get your knees and feet together. I did so just in time. The earth came up at me with a sudden rush and it was all over. I was told later that I'd made a bad exit and a bad landing. But I was still drunk with delight. I didn't give a damn. Must have been a very impressive man to join the paratroopers. But that was the whole. But that's the interesting thing. I did. I did once remember him saying something about that, and again he just said, um, "I filled out the wrong form." (laughs) He wanted to be. um, He said he wanted to be a secretary, but he'd filled out the wrong form. I hope you valued listening to the podcast today and the boys reading out their accounts at the start and both John and my reflections on remembrance the second world war and the school I'm going to leave you with one last thought from an older Ickian Michael Mattinson was the son of Michael and Margaret Mattinson from Offchurch in Warwickshire He was known to everyone as Peter. Peter Matteson died on the 16th of June 1944 as part of the assault on the Trasimene Line, north of Rome. We know less about Peter than we do about other Olderwickians, but we do have the inscription on his headstone in Orvieto Cemetery, Italy. He did a very brave and courageous act.